This uh, hearing of the Subcommittee on the Western Hemisphere, Transnational Crime, Civilian Security, Democracy, Human Rights, and Global Women's Issues will come to order. The title of this hearing is Democracy and Human Rights, the Case for U.S. Leadership. We're going to have two panels testifying today. The first will feature uh, Mr. Carl Gershman, President of the National Endowment for Democracy, the Honorable Mark Green, the President of the International Republican Institute, and Mr. Kenneth Wallach, who's the President of the National Democratic Institute. All have long and distinguished careers in this field, and we're fortunate to have them here today. The second panel will include Mr. Gary Kasparov, who is the chairman of the Human Rights Foundation, Dr. Hala Aldasari, a visiting scholar and human rights activist, and Mr. Danilo El Sexto Maldonado Machado, who is a Cuban artist and human rights activist. Each of these individuals have suffered some form of oppression, harassment, or marginalization by their governments, and I am confident the stories they will share today will shine a powerful light on those who attempt to violate the human rights and the freedom that every person is entitled to. We look forward to hearing your testimony. We thank everyone in attendance for being here. I specifically want to acknowledge the leadership of NED's core institutes representing labor and business, Shauna Bader-Blau and Andrew Wilson. Today we'll discuss a topic which I believe is especially timely, not simply because we are at the start of a new administration, which continues to formulate its foreign policy, but also because a cursory glance around the globe reveals disturbing trends of an authoritarian resurgence threatening human rights and democracy. From Russia to China, from North Korea to Venezuela, authoritarianism is on the rise. Human freedom is under assault, and restrictive new NGO laws are being used to crush civil society. Press freedom is being challenged. Just yesterday, we saw the expulsion of CNN and Espanol from Venezuela and political dissidents often feel isolated and abandoned, while those who repress them do so with seeming impunity. Many of our historic alliances with other leading democracies are fraying, while authoritarian regimes are closely collaborating and empowering other dictators. Some of the world's most egregious human rights violators retain well-paid lobbyists and PR firms. They engage in sophisticated expressions of soft power in the media, through so-called think tanks and academia and even the entertainment industry. It feels like freedom fighters are constantly playing catch-up. Earlier this month, Vladimir Karamurza of Open Russia was suspected of being poisoned for a second time. I understand that he is now recovering and will hopefully be released from the hospital shortly. He has been a target of the Russian government for some time. Later this month, on February 27th, will be the second anniversary of the assassination of his close ally, Boris Nemstov, who was murdered in view of the Kremlin after speaking out against Russia's aggression in Ukraine and Vladimir Putin's corruption. We invited his daughter, Zana Nepsova, to testify today, but she was unable to attend due to prior commitments. I would, however, like to enter into the record a report from her organization detailing the figures of political prisoners in Russia. In the seminal work, The Case for Democracy, famed Soviet dissident Natan Sharansky divides nations into free and fear societies. He writes, Quote, a simple way to determine whether the right to dissent in a particular society is being upheld is to apply the town square test. Can a person walk into the middle of the town square and express his or her views without fear of arrest, imprisonment, or physical harm? If he can, then that person is living in a free society. And if not, it's a fear society. End quote. For the Chinese lawyer, the Russian journalist, the Saudi blogger, the Venezuelan activist, the Cuban artist, the Bahraini civil society leader, there is no question. They are living in fear societies. Their attempts to freely, and I would add courageously, express themselves are met with harsh and unyielding repression. 
Civil rights champion, the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. famously said, injustice is anywhere, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. As the title of today's hearing makes clear, I believe and I think it is safe to say that ranking member Menendez agrees as well that there is indeed a convincing case to be made for strong, principled U.S. leadership in the promotion and support of democracy and human rights globally on this moral imperative alone. I recognize this is not a universal belief. It never has been, even during the heyday of the Soviet Union. And certainly it isn't now when there is no monolith enemy or single ideological counterpart to the free world. While the American people remain among the most generous in the world, widely giving to charitable causes, both domestically and internationally, altruism or even the moral impetus to stand with the oppressed and marginalized is insufficient motivation for many, especially when they consider our own decrepit infrastructure, our shuttered factories, our mounting national debt, and other priorities here at home. So for those of us who believe in the merits of this work, the burden is on us to make the case for why U.S. foreign policy must be infused with the values at the center of our own experiment in self-governance. It is incumbent upon us to explore and explain why the support of emerging democracies should be a core U.S. national interest, precisely because it is a national security imperative, and I hope today's hearing will provide a platform to do so. We, didn't, we, didn't, we need not abandon any notion of, of real politics. I recently read a National Review piece that captured a conversation that Mr. Kasparov had with Czech writer and dissident Václav Havel, in which Havel noted, now and then you have to negotiate with evil regimes, but you don't have to do so without bringing up human rights. Take Ronald Reagan. He negotiated with the Soviet Union about arms control and geopolitics, but he always put political prisoners on the table. With the previous administration, these issues took a back seat to other geopolitical goals, whether it was greater collaboration with China on climate change and the global economic crisis, or the resumption of diplomatic relations with the tyranny in Cuba, or the prospects of a grand bargain with Iran, dissidents in these and other countries often felt ignored and forgotten by the United States. My critique is not reserved for a democratic administration. I raised these issues with our Secretary of State, during, our new Secretary of State during his confirmation hearing, and I am, was concerned and remain about the way he addressed them. I intend to continue to highlight the importance of democracy and human rights as senior State Department nominees come before our committee for consideration. And as I stated when I voted for Mr. Tillerson, my support of or opposition to those nominees will be based in part on their willingness to make these issues a priority. I believe it is vital for the Secretary, for his deputies, for senior White House officials, including the President and Vice President, to meet publicly with dissidents and human rights activists as President Trump and Vice President Pence did last night with Lillian Tintori, the wife of Venezuelan opposition figure Leopoldo Lopez. It is essential that the leaders of the world's greatest democracy issue statements of support and solidarity and, where appropriate, condemnations when grave human rights abuses occur. I urge the administration to request robust democracy funding for such work in the upcoming budget cycle and to utilize recently passed legislation from the previous Congress which provides the State Department new tools to advance the cause of human rights and human dignity. Foremost among them, the Global Magnitsky Act, which the ranking members was so involved in. Writing eloquently and ominously in the Wall Street Journal last year, one of our witnesses, Mr. Kasparov, noted, globalization has made it easy for the enemies of the free world to spread their influence in ways the Soviet leadership couldn't have imagined, while the West has lost the will to defend itself and its values. 
I pray this warning is not borne out, of, borne out by reality. Consider the contrast with Natan Sharansky's account of being held in an eight by 10 foot cell in a Siberian prison in 1983 when his Soviet jailers allowed him to read the latest issue of the official Communist Party newspaper. Sharansky recalled a front page article condemning Reagan's famous evil empire speech and he wrote, tapping on the walls and talking through toilets, political prisoners spread the word of Reagan's so-called provocation. The dissidents were ecstatic. Finally, the leader of the free world had spoken the truth, a truth that burns inside the heart of each and every one of us. I believe we are at an inflection point and that the stakes could not be higher, as we will no doubt hear today. We must commit anew to a robust defense of our values because they are not merely American values. Rather, they reflect the yearning of millions of people around the world who live in societies dominated by fear and oppression, but who looked to the United States of America to champion their cause to fully exercise their God-given rights. I look forward to hearing from our witnesses. You have experience in the field and on the ground that we will, and on, and on the ground that will contribute greatly to what can so easily become abstract policy discussions. I turn now over to, to the ranking member, Senator Menendez. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman. And, and Mr. Chairman, since this is the first uh, hearing of the subcommittee, I wanna say I look forward to working with you uh, on the subcommittee's enormous breadth and scope of jurisdiction, uh, from the Western Hemisphere to transnational crime, to civilian security, to democracy and human rights, and global women's issues. Uh, we have a lot of ground to cover, and we're fortunate to be able to do so, and I look forward to working with you as I have on the full committee and, and, and in the Senate. Uh, I want to welcome our distinguished guests uh, for both panels. We're honored to have you and very much forward to looking forward to hearing your testimony. Uh, I'd like to thank uh, uh, the chairman for making this our first subcommittee hearing of the new Congress. For so many reasons, I cannot think of a more important topic, democracy, human rights, and the case for U.S. leadership for this subcommittee and truly for the Foreign Relations Committee as a whole to address. The United States itself was built on the dreams and deep beliefs of aspirational individuals, those of individual liberty, of inalienable rights, and of a system of governance that treats all individuals equally. This democratic vision led to the creation of a system of government that protects fundamental freedoms that we become at risk of taking for granted the freedom of speech, of expression, the freedom of praying however we choose. And we are still perfecting the vision of treating all individuals, regardless of gender, identity, race, religion, or creed equally under the law. In addition to these individual liberties, we enjoy the governance structures that ensure an independent judiciary and three equal branches of government that prevent one person from consolidating power. I note this foundation of the United States because it has and must continue to shape our worldview and drive our foreign policy. Diplomacy is not naked deal-making. There is often no bottom line in carefully crafted, nuanced relationships with foreign countries. Our diplomatic efforts must be driven by these values. We support democracies around the world because history has taught us too well that democracies that also value the rule of law and individual rights are our best partners and our most reliable allies. 
for those countries with whom we partner out of strategic necessity and shared security goals, we must always be vocal and active in supporting democratic efforts and independent voices. It is this moral clarity, this leadership, that sets the United States apart. Any suggestions of moral equivalency, that we are somehow on par with dictatorial regimes that kill political opponents, that jail journalists for speaking the truth, and indiscriminately bomb hospitals and slaughter innocent civilians should be resoundingly condemned. We are here today to give voice to those who have been silenced in their own countries and to better understand how and why American investment into democracy and governance programs furthers our own national security and foreign policy objectives. Mr. Maldonado, your struggle uh, hits a deeply personal note for me. Uh, my family uh, left Cuba in pursuit of the freedoms for which you are still fighting. I have the deepest respect for your courage and your tenacity in the face of brutal repression, of prison, of threats uh, against your family and friends. And I agree with you completely that we must not kowtow to the brutal regime of the Castros, and we should not reward them or their military cronies the benefit of an open relationship with the United States until they release all political prisoners and work to improve the lives of all Cubans. Dr. Eldasari, uh, I want to say your work and courage have amplified the voices of millions of women, uh, not just in Saudi Arabia, but also around the world. There is never an excuse for violence against women or treating women less than men. You raise an interesting point about the consolidation of power and the reliance on a system of unfair governance to explain away these heinous crimes against women. There is a direct connection between democracy, democratic institutions, and their role in protecting individual rights. And Mr. Kasparov, I completely agree with your assessment that the United States and the rest of the world must express moral clarity and stand up against and in support of our allies in the face of Russian aggression. We've now seen firsthand the impact that Russian attempts to undermine our democratic system can have. Finally, for our first panelists, your work simply speaks volumes uh, for itself. I thank you all for your service, for your commitment to promoting the values that makes this country great. Both of our main political parties in the United States deeply believe that strong political institutions that uphold the rule of law and promote good governance build stronger countries that form the basis of the international order. And I look forward to hearing your testimony. Well, we're going to thank you. Uh, Senator Menendez, we're going to begin with our first panel. Uh, let's begin with you, Mr. Carl Gershman. Thank you for being here today. I'm sorry. Right to left. Thank you're, you, Mr. You're left to right, my right. <laughs> thank you, Mr. Chairman. I, I really want to thank you for holding this very timely and important hearing on the importance of U.S. leadership in supporting human rights and democracy in the world. And I want you to know what a tremendous honor it is for me to be speaking at the same hearing with my old friend Gary Kasparov, with El Sexto, who was just in prison and having him here is such a joy, and with Hala Eltasari, who uh, we know very, very well. As we, as we know, democracy today is being challenged as never before since the end of the Cold War. The crisis has many dimensions, including the rise of ISIS and other terrorist movements, growing illiberalism in Turkey, Hungary, the Philippines, and other backsliding democracies. 11 years of consecutive decline in global democracy is measured by Freedom House, and most importantly, what the letter of invitation to this hearing calls 
resurgent authoritarianism. An editorial in the Washington Post last June defined resurgent authoritarianism as a modern-day version of the totalitarian threat that Winston Churchill decried in his famous Iron Curtain address in 1946. No longer is it about communism, the editorial said, but rather the rise of despots who, you, who rule by force and coercion from Russia to China, across the Middle East and Central Asia, to Latin America and Africa. In the past decade, these leaders have become more adept and daring at building a parallel universe to the liberal democratic order. In their construct, state power reigns supreme. Political competition is extinguished, civil society elbowed out, and freedoms of expression, association, and belief suppressed. Surprisingly, some of these leaders, particularly in Russia and China, have been wielding a sophisticated and deceptive soft power beyond their borders that is proving more enduring and effective than in the past. And I want to know, Mr. Chairman, that last year we published this book, Authoritarianism Goes Global, which really gives a thorough elaboration of this new phenomenon. The Congress, through the appropriations process, has called upon NED to develop a strategic response to this new threat, saying that NED is uniquely positioned to do so because of its decades-long experience working in the most hostile political terrain through the core institutes and its global grants and programs. Building on work that was already being done through its ongoing grants programs and research activities, in 2016, NED was able to identify and st fund startup programs to address six key strategic challenges. The need to strengthen democratic unity in defense of democratic norms and values that are under assault by authoritarian regimes in international institutions as well as in public attitudes. Second, the need to foster ethnic and religious pluralism to counter the spread of Islamist and other forms of religious and sectarian extremism. Third, the need to help civil society activists and organizations prevail against the concerted campaign by authoritarian regimes to repress and control them. Fourth, the need to defend the integrity of the information space against efforts by Russia and other authoritarian regimes to use social media and other communications tools to buttress their own power and to divide, demoralize, and even destabilize democratic societies. Fifth, the need to strengthen the capacity for democratic governance so that new and fragile democracies are able to make progress toward democratic consolidation. And finally, the need to combat the rise of kleptocracy or rule by thieves, a new and sy systemic feature of modern authoritarianism that due to the way kleptocrats use their illicit funds internationally also has the effect of eroding the integrity of institutions in democratic societies, including our own. NED's strategic grants complement its ongoing grants program in some 90 countries, strengthening its response to the formidable and integrated threat posed by the new wave of authoritarianism. We're finding new ways to tie programs together across regions to stimulate broader international partnerships and coalitions and to take sometimes isolated innovations and scale them up to a level that makes them more effective. Remarkably, these programs are reaching brave activists who are fighting for fundamental rights in some of the harshest political environments, 
These activists include North Korean defectors who are helping to break the information blockade that Pyongyang has used to keep North, the North Korean people totally isolated. They include Chinese lawyers who are defending religious freedom and the rule of law against harsh repression that is being urged on by the Chief Justice of their Supreme Court, who recently called upon provincial judges in China to show the sword against the idea of judicial independence. They include Cubans who are not only fighting for basic rights and political space, but who are expanding their network, their support networks by organizing around issues of local citizen concern. They include Venezuelans who, in addition to their continuing programs to defend human rights and reduce political polarization, are tracking food and medical shortages to, keep, to help coordinate the international relief agencies response to the worsening humanitarian crisis. And I might note, Mr. Chairman, that last year we honored uh, Lillian Tintori with our Democracy Award, and when we did, it showed the immense bipartisan support in the Congress for the struggle in Venezuela. They include Iraqi activists and members of local councils and governments who are implementing startup efforts to, re to rebuild governance, promote economic development and reconciliation, and build trust at the local level between the community and the security forces in the area in the areas liberated from ISIS control. Not least, they include Russian journalists, human rights defenders, and civic activists, many of whom have been declared foreign agents and must defend themselves in court against crippling fines, but who still fight for basic rights and take great risks in exposing the kleptocratic practices of Russia's ruling class. We recognize, Mr. Chairman, that the battles these activists and others like them around the world are fighting will be long and hard. Democracy does not come swiftly or easily. We must recognize that trying to take shortcuts to democracy is as dangerous as relying upon autocrats to preserve stability. Either way, we will reap the whirlwind. And we should not forget that even when democracy is eventually achieved, it must be defended with eternal vigilance as Thomas Jefferson once said, it must never be taken for granted even in our own country. Those who are fighting for democracy deserve the support of the American people, and through the net they receive it. They are defending the values we hold dear. They are the ones who will bring real democracy and through that, lasting stability. In striving to fulfill their aspirations, they are advancing our own fundamental national interests. They are helping us live in a safer and more peaceful world, and for that they deserve our solidarity. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, uh, Ambassador Green. And just for the, so, so we can get into the questions, because we've read your statements. They're extraordinarily well written. They're in the record. We just, uh, so uh, if, you, if there's somehow we could do it in five minutes each, that would be fantastic, so we can get right into the questions. Not censorship, this is a dem democracy hearing. I'm just, uh, but we really want to get talking to you here, so. I won't take it as censorship. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member. Uh, I appreciate uh, the opportunity to testify and thank you for holding this hearing. Mr. Chairman, I will summarize my remarks here today. Uh, really what I'm here to argue is that America should support democracy and liberty overseas, not only because it is the right thing to do, but as you both alluded, also because it is in our economic and security interests as well. Here's what I mean. 
Generally speaking, democracies, citizen-centered, citizen-responsive governments are more stable because they're more adaptable to change. They tend to be more prosperous, and therefore they make better economic partners for the U.S. Democracies are less likely to produce terrorists or weapons of mass destruction because they provide outlets for dissent and they allow for diversity of opinion. Authoritarian regimes, on the other hand, inherently pose risks to order, peace, and stability. They often give rise to refugees, burdening and even destabilizing their neighbors. They maintain their iron grip on power in part by isolating their citizens from outside ideas and influences. And sometimes that means attacking, directly or indirectly, physically or digitally, democratic neighbors who modeled the freedoms that authoritarians most fear. Sometimes pundits point to authoritarian governments as models of stability, but often that stability is a veneer. In fact, these regimes are prone to sudden instability. Because their power is overly centralized in an individual or a small group, when a crisis removes that leadership, it leaves a dark vacuum that attracts the most dangerous elements. Turning to our work itself, Mr. Chairman, a guiding principle for all of us here is that we should not, and indeed cannot, impose our democracy on the citizens of other countries. Instead, our purpose is to walk with citizens and political leaders as they blaze their own democratic trail. Now, our work has evolved greatly over the last several decades. In the wake of communism's collapse, we focus largely on supporting issue-based political parties and preparing candidates in their first real elections. Then our work evolved to assist new governments in being more accountable, effective, and responsive to citizens, particularly traditionally marginalized communities. Our marginalized communities practice continues through today with initiatives like the Women's Democracy Network, which offers training, mentorships, and networking for women all around the world as they enter leadership. WDN has 16 fully independent chapters and touches 17,000 women in more than 60 countries. Our latest initiative is Generation Democracy, a network of more than 400 youth organizations. It aims to help young people move from broad passion and idealism to constructive participation in political life. Mr. Chairman, each of us here today can point to countries where working together, and in most places we are working together, we've been able to help citizens and activists on their journey. There's the story of Burma, an ethnically diverse, culturally rich country with nearly unlimited economic potential, but its people suffered for decades under a brutal military dictatorship. Dissidents were often tortured and imprisoned for transgressions as simple as gathering in a group of more than five people. When IRI and NDI began working there 25 years ago, government crackdowns forced us to operate from just across the border in Thailand. But we were a lifeline to activists and opposition political parties, including Aung San Suu Kyi's National League for Democracy. Eventually, in 2013, we were able to open a formal office inside Burma itself. <coughs> Since then, we have engaged over 200,000 people from 340 organizations, from political parties to local civil society organizations. 20% of all the elected national, state, and regional parliamentarians serving today were actually trained by IRI. Now, there's no doubt that Burma's civilian-led government has a long way to go 
It faces real challenges from a failing infrastructure to disturbing ethnic and religious violence. But given how far they've come, there's every reason to believe that they can be a beacon to the region. Tunisia is another great example of how American support for democracy can make a difference even in a difficult neighborhood. Despite extreme pressures from outside extremist forces, Tunisia has held successive credible elections, solved problems through compromise, and consistently demonstrated a strong desire to be a U.S. ally. Immediately after a youth-led revol revolution chased Ben Ali from power, we all responded quickly to support the voices demanding a say in their country's future. We conducted hundreds of training workshops to develop political parties. We helped civil society representatives foster meaningful lines of communication between government and citizens. And we have strengthened Tunisian civil society by networking more than 60 organizations to promote government accountability. As with Burma, Tunisia faces serious challenges. The government and the economy have been rocked by terrorism and corruption continues to threaten its rise. We all believe that it's crucial that organizations like ours stay engaged to help them in their journey. Mr. Chairman, in his famous Westminster address, President Reagan told us all that democracy is not a fragile flower. Still, it needs cultivating. Some of the most notable successes in recent years, Tunisia, the Gambia, Burma, Ukraine, and others, offer proof of the difference that US-supported cultivating can make. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Ambassador. Mr. Wallace. Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Menendez, and the I to present our views, to present our views on these important issues. The notion that there should be a dichotomy between our moral preferences and our strategic interests is really a false one. Our ultimate foreign policy goal is a world that is secure, stable, humane, and safe, where the risk of war is minimal. Yet the reality is that hotspots most likely to erupt in violence are found, for the most part, in areas of the world that are non-democratic, places that have been defined by the Defense Department as the arc of instability. These are places that experience ethnic conflict and civil war. They generate refugee flows across borders. They are places Mr. where terrorists Mr. are. Mr. Wallach, is your microphone on just for purposes of our transcript? Okay. Try it now. Uh, they generate refugee flows across borders. They are places where terrorists are harbored and illegal drugs are produced. As Tom Carruthers of the Carnegie Endowment points out, in most of the dozens of countries where the United States is employing diplomatic, economic, and assistance measures to support potential or struggling democratic transitions from Cambodia, Indonesia, and Mongolia to El Salvador, Kenya, Nigeria, and Venezuela. Such efforts align closely with and serve a critical array of unquestionably hard interests. These include limiting the strategic reach of the United States autocratic rivals, fighting terrorism, reducing international drug trafficking, and undercutting drivers of massive refugee flows. We have learned that in this interconnected world, what happens for good or for evil within the borders of nations has global impact. Contrary to that famous tagline in tourism marketing, what happens, let's say, in Kiev or Cairo doesn't stay there. We have experienced a decade of democratic recession with the decline of political rights globally. Authoritarian regimes have become more aggressive and sophisticated in stifling the voices of civil society and political opponents, undercutting independent media and judicial independence, and manipulating elections. 
These regimes are also using new tools to disrupt elections and democratic systems beyond their borders. At the same time, new, fragile democracies are struggling to meet rising expectations, and even established democracies have been beset by growing citizen discontent with the performance of their democratic institutions. Yet there is another more positive story that should remind us about the universal demand for democracy and progress being made, sometimes in the most challenging of environments. Public opinion polls from countries in every region of the world have shown that vast majorities agree that democracy is the best system. Nascent African democracies of Ghana, Cote d'Ivoire, Senegal, Mozambique, and Sierra Leone are among the world's fastest growing economies. While many uh, countries, including Indonesia, Mongolia, Chile, Colombia, Georgia, South Korea, and Mexico, have continued to make strides in both consolidating their democracies and maintaining steady economic growth. And there are also places where democratic setbacks have been reversed, either by the demands of citizen movements, as, with the, as was the case in Burkina Faso, or through the intervention of intergovernmental organizations, as recently occurred in the Gambia. I would like to point to democracy support efforts in two challenging environments, in Ukraine and in Syria, which is seemingly one of the most unlikely places on earth to find good news on this front. Ukraine undoubtedly continues to face grave challenges, including economic dislocation and corruption, not to mention occupation in the south and a war in the east. Purveyors of false news would have us believe that the country is deeply divided and that a large portion of the population is desperate to be rescued by Russia. The truth, however, is exactly the opposite. According to NDI's research, 86% of Ukrainians believe it is important or very important that their country is democratic. This is true whether respondents live in the East or the West and regardless of political affiliations. Ukrainians feel strongly that they will not give up their right to determine their own future, even if doing so would bring peace. And with outside encouragement and support, Ukrainians can point to concrete achievements. These include the emergence of new political parties that have national reach and are focused on citizens they represent rather than on the oligarchs who would fund them. Brought together by NDI in partnership with European institutions, party factions in the parliament are overcoming deep fragmentation to agree on procedures that will make it easier to build consensus around future reforms. At the local level, citizens are participating in decision-making in large numbers. In our programs alone, more than 45,000 citizens have engaged directly in the national reform process, and more than 1.3 million have been reached by television. These are the kinds of bottom-up changes that, given time and continued support, can put down deep democratic roots. In the midst of massive humanitarian crisis and refugee flight in Syria, another story of democratic resilience is unfolding. In liberated territories across Syria, citizen groups are prioritizing community needs and local administrative councils are responding by providing critical services. These democratic subcultures can become a model for the country's future once the conflict subsides. More than two dozen NDI governance advisors are working each day in 34 of these locations, helping to advise local groups and councils and bringing them together to solve problems. Courageously and successfully, these groups and councils have challenged extremists who have sought to establish parallel governing structures. As one regional news outlet noted, you may think Syrians are condemned to an unpleasant choice between Bashar al-Assad and the jihadists, 
But the real choice being fought out by Syrians is between violent authoritarianism on the one hand and grassroots democracy on the other. Mr. Chairman, the citizens of our country from its very founding have held the conviction that to secure the blessings of liberty for ourselves and our country, we must establish government that derives legitimacy and power from the consent of the people. We receive the help of others in our founding and from that point onward have embraced the ethic of assisting those around the world who step forward, sometimes at great risk in their own countries, to promote, establish, and sustain democracy. We as a nation have benefited from the peace that global democratic development produces and from the economic opportunities that it creates. Thank you very much. Thank you all for being here. And I'll, I'll begin with a broad question that I get all the time. And I'd love to give you all the opportunity to address it. And here's how it goes when I talk about democracy. They will say to me, well, these were bad people, Saddam Hussein in Iraq and um, Gaddafi in Libya and the like. But um, in the end, they were, they killed terrorists. And so weren't we better off just having these autocrats stay in power in these countries than the vacuum and the chaos that we now see in Syria and in Iraq and in Libya and in other places? In essence, the argument that there are places in the world that can never be democratic for whatever reasons they point to, cultural or otherwise, why wouldn't we prefer in those parts of the world to have stability? Isn't that in the national interest of the United States to have strong autocratic leaders who can control these elements in those societies that could be radicals uh, and the like? Aren't we better? Isn't that more important than promoting democracy, particularly in nations uh, who do not have a tradition of Western democratic values? And I would ask whoever wants to go first, but that is one of the fundamental challenges I get every time that I talk about promoting democracy. Mr. Chairman, if I can uh, maybe first take a, a crack at that. I think we have to understand that authoritarian regimes are the main source of instability in the world today. Uh, they are the ones who are responsible for kleptocracy, for corruption, for, um, for refugees. Uh, they acquire uh, weapons of mass destruction um, against international treaties. Democracies don't go to war against each other in the United States. Uh, it's, it's never, its opponents are not democracies. Its opponents are anti-democratic countries. Um, and there are other, authoritarianism is the main source also of state failure um, and they also, the, the people, sometimes even when they're removed, they try to disrupt democratic transitions and make it very, very difficult uh, for transitions to succeed. So I think that the idea that we can achieve um, stability through somehow partnering with authoritarians um, is, is a very dangerous hope. Uh, especially because they also, these authoritarian regimes, in repressing civil society, in, in not giving people a voice, they really do leave um, it, extremist movements uh, as the only alternative. Uh, people we support in these societies are struggling, and they're struggling against great odds. But it's often that these autocratic governments prefer to have extremist oppositions because they think it legitimizes them in the same way that you're hearing this argument that they are the ones that can defeat the terrorists. Um, I think it's a very dangerous illusion. I think we've uh, learned in the past that we can't rely upon these such, such regimes for stability. 
Um, and even though it, democracy is long and hard and difficult, if we can build civil societies, strong civil societies in these countries, even when these countries are authoritarian, they will have a much better chance of a, of a stable democratic transition when that time comes, as it inevitably will, because these regimes will not be able to modernize, they cannot reform, and ultimately they will fail. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, first, I'd like to associate myself with Carl's remarks. I think he's actually captured it uh, very well. I guess what I would uh, add to it, as we talked earlier, President Reagan gave this speech at Westminster that essentially launched all of us. And even in those days, so back in the early 80s, there were some who argued that parts of the world couldn't handle democracy. Somehow they didn't culturally have the ability to have democracy and protection of human rights. And he very eloquently called that cultural condescension or worse. And I agree. Uh, when we talk about some of these countries, uh, those who say that they somehow shouldn't have democracy, it's demeaning. We should actually ask the people involved and what it is that they want, their own desires, their own aspirations. So much of this comes through courageous, everyday citizens in the face of this brutality and repression that stand up under great peril for the cause of democracy. Secondly, something that Carl said I think is very, very important, and that's this, this myth of stability. Stability is, in these cases, often but a veneer because you get pent-up uh, despair, raging, and you do leave the citizens oftentimes very little choice but to resort to some of the extremism that we all point to as being so very, very dangerous. And, I, uh, uh, and you, you look at the inherent damage that these countries do in the region, whether it's giving uh, rise to extremist movements, whether it's causing flows of refugees that overwhelm democratic systems around them, there is not no cost to the existence of these regimes. Mr. Chairman, I'll just add uh, a couple points. These regimes, um, so-called stable regimes, seem stable until they're unstable. And since they have not created any institutions, they have not created a social contract with the people, once they fall, they leave in their wake instability and conflict. Um, it is interesting in the Middle East region, if you look at those regimes that are stable and enjoy a degree of uh, legitimacy uh, that are confronting many of the challenges um, that exist in the region, are those regimes that are either going through a democratic transition, in the case of Tunisia, or engaged in reform or liberalization, which is true in Jordan and Morocco, um, Lebanon, perhaps to a lesser degree, but still liberalization in Algeria. These are the regimes that are better able to confront extremism, better able to engage citizens in the political process with all the challenges that they're faced. So if you look at the region, those are the places that are better able to handle the refugees, better able to handle conflict, better able to handle the, the expectations of citizens. And the answer is reform, the answer is liberalization. The answer is not autocracy and uh, repressive uh, regimes and a continuation of regimes that don't have a social contract with the people. 
And I just want one more quick question because the Senator Kane has now arrived and the ranking member has questions. So this is also broad. In order for us as a nation to be credible advocates and champions for democracy and freedom and liberty, we have to, it begins with our own example here at home. In essence, if we were a nation that didn't have those principles and hadn't lived them for over two centuries, it would be difficult for us to be the champions of that abroad. And my perspective on it is that a lot of times in the coverage of our, and obviously want your perception on it, but broader than that, and, and sometimes in the coverage of our modern political process, uh, people talk about several of the things that are going on. Obviously, we had a very divisive election cycle. The last four weeks have been vibrant in, uh, in the political debate in this country. And I see, despite all of that, institutions that are working. I see a United States Senate where the minority party has exercised its rights under the rules to, to force the Senate to take all the time available to it for these debates on these issues. I've seen the media continue to report as they see fit in a free society, irrespective of political pressure, criticism on both sides of the equation. I see a court system that stepped forward and despite whether you agree with the decision or not, exercised its role. I see two people on this panel that one who ran for vice president, one who ran for president, and neither one of us won. Senator Menendez was too wise to undertake such an endeavor, but the <laughs> neither one of us went to jail. Both of us are sitting here today. Um, is not some of this, despite all this coverage out there about the uh, intensity of our political debate in this country, isn't this something we should celebrate in, in, in some ways? Uh, in comparison to what happens in other parts of the world where you don't see these things happening for one simple reason, and that is the other side, the people who are not in power in those countries, they don't get to protest, they don't get to come back to the Senate and the work, they don't get to slow debate up, they don't get to vote on the Senate floor, they don't get to go on the press and criticize whoever they want, they get to go to jail, they get poisoned, they die, they go into exile. Isn't this something that in the end should be looked at as a strength and not a weakness? I think, Mr. Chairman, that uh, former Israeli Foreign Minister Abba Iban once said that democracy eventually does the right thing, but only after exhausting all the alternatives. Uh, but the point is that democracies have a self-correcting mechanism because of checks and balances, because of citizen engagement, um, because of different branches of government. Um, I, would, uh, I would only say that overseas, I think there is a deep recognition of the institutions that exist in this, in this country. Um, we have problems, we have challenges like everybody else, uh, but in many of the countries where we're operating, there are those who would say, we wish we only had the problems that you have, and we wish we only had the challenges that you have. So, but we all recognize that there is today an international solidarity network among small d Democrats around the world. We have a responsibility to each other to help each other, and they recognize, however, that ultimately systems like this, with all their flaws and all their difficulties, is better than all the alternatives. Mr. Chairman, uh, I, I served as ambassador to Tanzania, and I was there on the election night, the McCain-Obama election, and we had TVs in many parts of the country so that people could watch. They could watch the spectacle of the peaceful transfer of power. And we made sure that uh, they all saw Senator McCain's concession speech, which was beautiful, eloquent, very special, and something that we thought was important for our African audiences to see, the fact that there weren't tanks rolling in the streets. And it was something that made um, an important difference. Secondly, uh, when we do go around 
and uh, talk about democracy in other countries, I think it's also important that we begin with humility. And so when I talk about democracy in other countries, I say, look, I'm not saying that we have all the answers. I'm saying maybe we've made all the mistakes. And maybe you, as a friend of our country, don't have to make the same mistakes that we've made throughout our history. We're on a journey just like you. Perhaps we're a little further ahead, but we're still on the journey and we haven't arrived. Well, let me say this, Mr. Chairman. Um, you know, we're living in a different period right now. Um, this is not the Cold War anymore. It's a much more complex world. You, you yourself referred to that at the beginning. It's hard for people to understand what the threats are that we face. In addition, we live in an era now of social media, which is having a very, very interesting but disruptive effect. Um, and we know also that foreign powers, like Russia, as I said in my testimony, are using social media in their own way with fake news and fake platforms and trolls uh, to divide, to demoralize, even to destabilize. So we face these new conditions, and then th you have a further uh, problems of political polarization, of, of dysfunction. And this is reflected in polling data, which we published in our Journal of Democracy, um, which show a decline in support for democracy, especially among young people. Their parents are more supportive of democracy than they are, and their grandparents are even more supportive. So there's no memory of, of the threats that democracy faced in the 20th century, and you have these problems that are then exacerbated. And democracy is a messy process. It takes time to get things done. Social media has conditioned people to want very instant solutions to problems. So there, there is a kind of a demoralization that some people have. And I think it's one of the greatest challenges that we face is to how to really re revive democratic conviction. It's not going to be easy. And it's not really our mission because our, the Congress has given us an international mission. But I believe, and I've said this in many talks that I give in the United States, that we need to connect young Americans with activists abroad who are giving their lives for freedom. They need to know who these people are. They need to partner with them. They need to work with them. And, we, we, and we, we have a large, large education job to do. And so I agree with you. Yes, uh, there's a lot of success that we can point to. We have to make it better. We have to solve our problems. And then we have to educate people more about the differences between the kind of messy, pluralist democracy you're talking about and the corrupt and oppressive dangers of an of authoritarian system. Thank you. Senator Menendez. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Those are some thought-provoking questions. I'll, I'll just say to you that I didn't run for president because it's not as young or handsome as you or, or as uh, witting and charming as Senator Kane. So uh, I, I, I am fulfilling my role here in the Senate. Just put up two low hurdles. Uh, um. <laughs> I don't know about that. There you go. You see what I mean? Uh, uh, on a serious note, um, you know, I... I was listening, Ken, to your uh, testimony, as well as all of yours, and you said something that, you know, was galvanizing for me a moment, that a, a decade, a decade of democratic recession. What do you attribute that to? Have you put your microphone on so that the recorder here can have it? Yeah, I, I, I think that there are, there are two, two um, maybe more than two, but I'll point to two uh, sort of phenomena. Uh, the first is that over the past, I think, decade, there has been what is called authoritarian learning. Um, autocrats used to be isolated from each other, isolated from their people. Uh, 
Um, and there has been a learning curve for these autocrats, much more sophisticated. Um, laws that are passed in one country to curtail uh, independent uh, activism, let alone opposition activity. Uh, a law will suddenly appear in another country three weeks later. Uh, there is now a network of autocrats who are learning from each other and now are trying to actively seek to curtail the spread of democracy in other countries. So that's one. Second, I think that um, new fragile democracies uh, inherit the legacies of their non-democratic predecessors, poverty, disease, uh, inaction, uh, uh, lack of political participation, apathy. And when the new democratic institutions don't deliver, uh, meet the expectations of their citizens, one of two things happen. Either they, they go to the streets, which is not where public policy issues should be addressed, or they'll vote for a populist, non-democratic leader who will turn against civil society and the opposition. Mm. So that's why not only do I think it's important for us to support uh, small-D Democrats in non-democratic environments, but why we have to support new democracies to help them sustain, build and sustain democratic institutions. Mm -hmm. uh, Branislaw Goremek, the former foreign minister of Poland, said democracy doesn't necessarily go from triumph to triumph. Mm -hmm. And we've learned that uh, democratic process, uh, progress is not linear. And so it requires, I think, sustained engagement by the international community broadly and the United States in particular. Well, in that regard, let me ask you, uh, you know, as we <clears throat> will face budgetary issues here and uh, the new administration and uh, how they think about uh, the appropriate use of uh, monies for uh, foreign diplomacy and foreign aid and democracy and human rights development, I want to establish here for us for the record um, Part of, I, as I understand, your challenges in communicating your successes, because, you know, we, there's a lot of effort to be metric-driven. Not all of this is so easily metric-driven, certainly in the short term, but nonetheless, uh, is that your programs rely on a certain amount of discretion. Um, and can you share with the committee in a way that doesn't undermine that, but nonetheless, what makes your programs effective? Why should the United States taxpayer uh, be ultimately supporting your initiatives? Mr. Chairman, I think the basic feature of what it is that we do is this is not top-down, this is bottom-up. I mean, what has to be recognized is that there, there are people around the world who share our values. Uh, they may not be at this moment a majority in their countries, but they're fighting for our values. And what Ned does is demand-driven. It's bottom-up. It's not we're going in there and we're going to engage in social engineering or top-down imposition of democracy. And I think that makes it ex extremely both effective and cost-effective uh, in terms of the way we do our work. And there's a spirit about it. That, and then we do other things in addition to trying to provide them with financial help or training. We link them together. They learn from each other. Um, we engage in actions of international solidarity when people are imprisoned. We, the event we had for Lillian Tintori and the others who were imprisoned in, in Venezuela, and we do that every year. We have to think of new ways to, um, to provide them uh, with support, and those are not expensive. Um, and I think it's the spirit of the institution that really explains its, um, its success and the fact that we connect with people on the ground. 
if I could add to that, uh, you're correct. It's difficult to measure sometimes the metrics of progress and success, but there are shining success stories. As we mentioned, each of us in our uh, opening remarks in places like Tunisia and Burma, the Gambia, Nigeria last year. Uh, so there are certainly success stories uh, worth holding on to. But I would also suggest uh, this country is wonderfully generous in terms of its investments overseas dedicated to lifting lives and building communities. Global Health, PEPFAR, these are tremendous programs. In the long run, it's hard for me to see any of those investments being truly sustainable unless you have in those countries where the investments are made citizen-centered, citizen-responsive institutions with the capacity to continue them on, to make these sustainable. So I think it's also a crucial part of making sure that our other investments are well spent and are sustainable and have a lasting impact. So I think when we fail to address issues of governance and political systems, I think we put our other investments at risk, quite frankly. It seems to me that places in the world without hope for political participation, economic opportunity, or even the ability to provide basic safety for their citizens ultimately creates the intersection between citizen security, refugee migration, democracy, uh, and, or, and or the lock of democracy and the rule of law, which is incredibly important to U.S. companies that ultimately want to uh, go abroad and make investments, and when they do, they want a rule of law, a system that ultimately will honor their intellectual property rights, that will honor uh, their contracts, that at least they will have a plain and level playing field. So there's a very tangible element to this as well. Let me ask you finally uh, two separate things. One is, when the United States established relations with Burma, uh, the Obama administration laid out a set of metrics. It basically said, you want to have a better standing with the United States, you want to have a relationship with the United States, you have to release a Yang Suyi, the leader of the opposition, you have to hold <coughs> legislative elections, you have to permit the UN Special Rapporteur on uh, Human Rights to come in, among other things. And uh, all those things eventually developed themselves to be a reality. Um, I think of Cuba or I think of Malaysia, and shouldn't we be looking for the, isn't that a template for what we should be looking for from these countries? I agree completely, and, and uh, frankly, this is my own personal view. We don't you know, speak for policy, but we haven't done that with Cuba, um, with the opening. I mean, the, the real critical thing, I think more important than the normalization of relations between Cuba and the United States is the normalization of relations between the Cuban government and, and, and the Cuban people, and that has not been done. And we had a lot of leverage in that situation. I don't think it was adequately used. We're not using that leverage today in the Balkan region. I've just written something about that. I think it's a, a bomb that's about to explode. And the reason is because we have prioritized stability over democratic reform, and it's the absence of democratic reform which is giving Russia all the opportunities to exploit the divisions in the Balkans between the Serbs and Croatians and, and the Albanians and so forth. But it's becoming, it could, this was the dominant issue in the 90s, it could come back again. And our analysis is, is because the international community has prioritized just stability and not reform. And so it's, a, it's, an, it's an explosion waiting to happen. So yes, I think we have to use the leverage that we have. We don't always have that leverage, um, but we have to use the leverage that we have consistently 
um, to, uh, to try to encourage openings in situations. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator King. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and fascinating uh, testimony and questions. Um, one of you used the phrase a few minutes ago in response to Senator Rubio, a small d democracy solidarity network, that there is either such a thing or needs to be such a thing. And I've also been struck with, I, I don't know, is it a lack of self-confidence or something in the democracies of portraying the virtues of the model? The, the authoritarians are nothing if not self-confident. They're feeling very, very good right now. Um, and they're in all different parts of the globe, and, and I hadn't thought about this learning curve issue and the sharing of best authoritarian practice, but I guess that's part of what's going on. I mean, what, what is the, the status of any democracy solidarity network? You know, on, on this committee and on the Armed Services Committee, we deal with military alliances like NATO a lot, but that puts the military issue in a prime position, which means the democracy promotion is, is always secondary. In fact, it's kind of looked at with suspicion if you lead with military first. So talk to me about what network there is or what network should there be around the world that would link the disparate democracies, the mature, the nascent, um, which are now in all parts of the globe. That's great, but what more could we do so that that network would be stronger? Mr. Chairman, there are, there are a lot of networks, and I'm sure Ken and Mark will talk about some of them. But there, there's a, an intergovernmental network, which is called the Community of Democracies. It so happens that the US now has the presidency of this. It was a network that was created in 2000 by Madeleine Albright and Bronisław Geremek of Poland. They meet biennially at the ministerial level. Um, and they're supposed to meet in the United States um, in September. Uh, the current administration has actually inherited the US presidency of the Community of Democracies from the previous administration. Um, and we have had meetings um, to, uh, to prepare for the creation, when that ministerial meeting takes place, of a new global association associated with the community of parliamentarians, where they would organize multi-partisan uh, multi democracy caucuses in their respective parliaments, and they would meet within the parliamentary network to be a, an instrument for sharing democratic practices and also for global solidarity. At the non-governmental level, the NED uh, has created something called the World Movement for Democracy. We had the founding assembly of the World Movement for Democracy in India in February of uh, 1999. We wanted to do it in a non-Western country to really make the point that democracy is not a Western uh, value, but it is a universal value. At that meeting, uh, the great philosopher Amartya Sen gave one of the most important statements on democracy, democracy as a universal idea uh, at that meeting. Um, and the world movement continues to be active. It has solidarity networks um, in different regions. I've just learned that the youth network of the world movement for democracy in Latin America, headed by uh, Rosa Maria Paya, is going to be giving its Paya Award to the Secretary General of the o Organization of American States in Cuba. So the Secretary General is going to be visiting. These are how these networks operate. There are networks in Asia which are engaged on a regional basis, but then they meet um, uh, globally, and the next assembly of the world movement will be in Senegal in the spring of 2018. Uh, just very briefly to add to that, uh, something that uh, I thought you were going to touch upon, which I think is, is important and, and we haven't really gotten to, uh, when the question was asked about why is it that democracy is perceived to be in decline, 
I think one of the factors is that authoritarians, first off, they do feel self-confident, but they also have tools at their disposal. And disinformation and propaganda on, a, on an expansionist level that we have not seen for many, many years, I think is pushing back. And I do think it's something that we in the community of democracies, I'm not talking about the formal organization, but the community, really have to work hard to push back against. Because I think it is causing tremendous erosion of confidence in democracy in, in a number of places in the world. And I think it's a significant problem and challenge for us. Um, I will just add to that, uh, Senator Kane. I think when we, the endowment and, and our institutes began 30 some years ago, there were a few networks around the world. Um, and this was an American enterprise for uh, IRI and NDI. We were, in a sense, patterned after the German party foundations, mm -hmm. uh, which played such an important role in Spain and Portugal during the 1970s. Um, but today, there has been a sea change in terms of networks. Um, you've had, traditionally, the network, international networks of political parties, social democratic, liberal, Christian democratic, that represent 450 parties in 150 countries. You have new initiatives like the Open Government Partnership that now includes um, 70 countries and about 50 parliaments and 180 civic organizations around the world. Um, you have uh, a global network of 4 million domestic election monitors around the world that help each other. Um, you have intergovernmental organizations now that have adopted democratic charters, the most recently being the African Union, uh, which is one of the reasons why there was regional intervention in the case of the Gambia. So these networks now exist. This is no longer an American enterprise. Mm -hmm. um, this is really an international enterprise. And I think given the challenges that we've all talked about, what it, it's a call to action to reinvigorate many of these, uh, these networks. Uh, to, to meet some of the challenges that we're facing today. Thank you very much. Do you have any, any further questions from our members? We, we want to thank all of you for being here today, for your statements, for meeting with me earlier in the week, for answering our questions. We want to move on to our second panel, but we're grateful for the work that you're doing, and we, we thank you again for your time. And um, You may receive uh, written questions from members on the panel, and we'd encourage you to answer those so they can become part of our, our record. We'll now seat the second panel.
I want to thank the, uh, the panelists for all being here. We're going to start uh, with uh, Mr. Maldonado Machado. Um, I was reminded that all three of the senators here today speak Spanish, so you may not even need a translator, but for purposes of the public record, we're going to have that uh, translated, and we thank you for being here. Make sure that the microphone is on for... The microphone. Can can someone have the microphone? Thank you, Marco. Thank you, Bob. Sorry for for don't speak English. Thank you, everybody. Gracias por la oportunidad de amplificar mi voz y denunciar la situación de violaciones de derechos humanos en de donde vengo. Cuba. Thank you for the opportunity to amplify my voice to denounce the situation of human rights violations of where I come from, Cuba. Tengo 33 años de edad y he tenido cuatro ingresos en prisión por el único motivo de, de haber criticado a la dictadura cubana a través de mi arte. I am 33 years old and I have already served four sentences for the only reason that I have criticized the Cuban dictatorship through my art. En Cuba la libertad de expresión de los artistas está prohibida por el artículo 39 de la Constitución. Según este artículo, es libre la creación artística siempre que su contenido no sea contrario a la revolución. In Cuba, freedom of speech by artists is prohibited by Article 39 of the Constitution. According to this, art artistic creation is free, provided that its contents is not contrary to the revolution. Esto significa que el trabajo de artistas como yo, como el de mi compañero Gorky Águila, o el de mi colega Tania Bruguera, que somos críticos del régimen dictatorial de los hermanos Castro, es ilegal en Cuba. This means that the work of artists such as myself and my colleagues, Gorky Aguila and Tania Bruguera, which is critical of the dictator, uh, dictatorial regime of the Castro brothers, is illegal in Cuba. Por este motivo, pasé dos años en prisión cuando tenía 18 años, un año cuando tenía 24, 10 meses a la edad de 31, y dos meses con 33 años recientemente. For that reason, I served two years when I was 18, one year when I was 24, 10 months at age 31, and most recently, two months at the age of 33. Hablaré aquí de las últimas veces que estuve preso. El día de Navidad del 2014, como parte de un performance, intenté soltar dos cerdos en la calle de La Habana. Los dos cerdos vivos, pintados de verde, uno con el nombre de Raúl y el otro con el nombre de Fidel. Titulé la obra Rebelión en la Granja y Memoria, en inglés Animal Farm, en honor a George Owen. Now I'll refer to the two last occasions in which I was in prison. On Christmas Day 2014, as part of a performance, I, attempt, I attempted to release two little pigs on the streets of Havana, both painted in green, one with the name of Raúl and the other with the name of Fidel. I call that performance Animal Farm in Memoriam in honor of George Howell. Esta obra de arte me costó pasar 10 meses en prisión. 
durante los cuales fui torturado física y psicológicamente por la dictadura, al punto en que entré en una huelga de hambre y llegué a considerar dejarme morir en la cárcel. This cost me 10 months in prison. During that time, I was tortured physically and psychologically by the dictatorship to the point that I declared myself on a hunger strike and even considered the possibility of letting myself die in prison as a result. Luego de 10 meses en prisión, sorpresivamente fui puesto en libertad, trasladado hasta mi casa, en un auto desde la prisión. Hasta el día de hoy, no he sido notificado cargo criminal ni he enfrentado juicio alguno. After 10 months and without previous warning, I was released and driven uh, to my house from prison. Until today, I have not been served any notice of pending criminal charges, nor have I been summoned for any type of trial. En aquella oportunidad fui, fui liberado después de protestas y huelga de hambre dentro de la prisión y gracias a la constante denuncia por parte de mi madre, mi hermana, mi abuela, amigos, instituciones internacionales como Human Rights Foundation, la Fundación Cubano-Americana, Anistía Internacional, etc. At that time I was released following my protests and my hunger strike in prison and constant denunciations by my mother, my sister, my grandmother, friends, and international institutions such as the Human Rights Foundation, the Cuban American National Foundation, Amnesty International, etc. Estos amigos y otros más se unieron de nuevo durante mi última vez en prisión. Esta última vez pasé casi dos meses preso en una cárcel de máxima seguridad en La Habana por el simple delito de no haber mostrado tristeza ante la muerte del dictador Fidel Castro. These same friends and others came together again this last time I was in prison. I was in a maximum security prison in Havana for the simple crime of not having expressed any sadness over the death of dictator Fidel Castro. En la noche de la madrugada del día 26 en que se anunció la muerte del dictador Fidel Castro, yo dormía cuando fui despertado por las llamadas de mi amigo y mi hermana, me vestí rápido y en la calle se sentía sin duda el miedo. Cada vez estaba más vacía y todo estaba más en silencio. On the night of November 26, when, I, when his death was announced, Fidel Castro's death was announced, I was awakened by calls from friends and my sister. I dressed quickly and when I left my house, I could surely perceive fear as the streets became emptier and more silent. Ese día empecé a pensar en las atrocidades y crímenes de las de lesa humanidad, de lesa humanidad que han cometido en más de 56 años los hermanos Fidel y Raúl Castro. Así que salí a la calle a gritar, sal a la calle, que se murió el asesino, se murió la yegua. Caminé como una milla, luego me transporté al otro lado de la ciudad y caminé la mitad de la distancia anterior, celebrando hasta que se transmitió en vivo el video que se hizo viral en las redes, por ser el único suceso de la ciudad de La Habana, en la isla. So, uh, that day I began to think over how many atrocities and how many crimes against humanity have been committed in more than 56 years by brothers Fidel and Raúl Castro. So I went out to the streets to shout, take the streets, the murderer died, the mayor died. I walked about a mile, took transportation to the other side of the city, and walked for a mile, for a while celebrating until my video that went viral on social media was transmitted live 
as the only celebratory event in the city of Havana and on the island. En el video, además, asumiendo mi condición de persona libre en un país controlado por una dictadura totalitaria, tomé la decisión riesgosa de grafitear la pared del hotel donde llegaron sus tropas por primera vez a La Habana, hace casi 60 años, armados y sin elecciones democráticas. In the video, by assuming my identity as a free person in a country controlled by a totalitarian dictatorship, I took the risky decision of graffitiing the wall of the hotel where Fidel Castro's troops were quartered for the first time in Havana almost 60 years ago, armed and without a democratic election. Cometí este acto porque traté de seguir el ejemplo del gran Baclá Havel, ex-artista y ex-presidente de la República Checa, que recomendó a todas las personas a quienes como él nos ha tocado vivir bajo el totalitarismo comunista a vivir en la, en la verdad, a dejar de fingir la realidad que el régimen impone por la fuerza y que en el caso de la muerte de Fidel hubiera significado que yo tenía que fingir que estaba triste por la muerte del dictador, así como fingieron miles de personas por miedo a la represión aquel día. I did that following the example of great Vaclav Havel, the artist and former president of the Czech Republic, who, adv who advised all those who, like him, had to live under communist totalitarianism to live in truth, to stop pretending that the reality imposed by the regime by force is genuine. Upon the death of Fidel Castro, this notion, notion would have meant that I should feel sad for the death of the dictator as was pretended by thousands of people for fear of repression on that day. Ese día, luego de caminar por media ciudad, me regresé a mi casa. Mi cuerpo estaba cansado y dormía en mi cama cuando un ruido me hizo preocuparme de la puerta y fue cuando vi una patrulla con un policía y dos civiles con el dueño tratando de, de abrir la puerta para llegar hacia mí. En el proceso pude llamar a mi prometida, Alessandra Martínez, y le dije, llama a todos, que me van a llevar preso. Los dos se me arrojaron encima sin identificarse ni verbalmente siquiera y solo recibí insultos y golpes de estos personajes que según ellos, no había según ellos le había faltado el respeto a Fidel Castro. That day, after walking through the city, I returned home. I was tired and went to bed when I was awakened by a noise at my door that made me worry. Then I saw a patrol car with a policeman and two other men in plain, in, plain in plain clothing when I saw the owner of the house handing them the key to my door. In the process, I was able to call my fiance, Alexandra Martinez, and I said, call everyone, they are taking me prisoner. The two of them threw themselves at me without even identifying themselves verbally and I received only insults and blows from these characters because, according to them, I had disrespected Fidel Castro. Y así fui llevado a la unidad de policía de la Lisa, sin parar de golpearme, incluso hasta después de bajarme. Pero igualmente no lograban impedir mis gritos de asesinos. Sí se murió la yegua y bien. Cuando ya en la unidad les pregunté si algunos de ellos me conocía, si les había hecho algo, si no había cometido delito alguno, porque era que se me golpeaba por mi forma de pensar, a lo que ellos alegaron, la ley nos respalda. 
and so I was taken to the police unit of La Lisa as they continued to hit me even after I got off, which did not stop my cries of murderers. Yes, they may have died, and good thing. When in the unit, I asked, do you know me? Have I done something to you? If I have not committed any crime, why do you beat me for my way of thinking, to which they only claim? The laws support us. Esta vez pasé en prisión 55 días. En este tiempo, una vez más sufrí tortura física y psicológica, y me impidieron que viera mi familia y mi prometida. Fui trasladado por seis centros de detención, incluyendo por el último la cárcel de mayor rigor, el Combinado del Este. También en este tiempo se me fue prohibido el derecho a tener abogado, ya que mi abogada internacional voluntaria, la señora Kimberly Motley, que había tratado de visitarme en La Habana, fue también ella misma apresada e inmediatamente deportada de Cuba. This time, the cost was 55 days in prison. At this time, I once again suffered physical and psychological torture, preventing me from seeing my family and my fiancé. I was transferred to six consecutive detention centers, including the high-security prison Combinado del Este. Also, at this time, I was deprived of the right to be represented by a lawyer, since my pro bono international attorney, Kimberly Motley, who had tried to visit me in Havana, was arrested and immediately deported from Cuba. En el Combinado del Este, es una cárcel horrenda y de máxima seguridad donde solamente se envía a los presos más peligrosos. Los techos estaban llenos de goteras, hacinamiento de celda de 6 por 4 metros cuadrados para 36 personas, con literas a tres acomodadas algunas para evitar la gotera de filtración. Durante el día, las luces eran apagadas y aunque la luz, que la luz era de, ese, o sea, que era de día, pero la luz no traspasaba los barrotes. En una ocasión, mis carceleros me trataban de aterrorizar, amenazándome que en cualquier momento me sacarían al patio para ejecutarme en un pelotón de fusilamiento. Combinado del Este is a horrendous high security prison where only the most dangerous prisoners are sent. The roofs were rife with leaks. The six by four square meter cells were overcrowded for 36 people and bunk beds for three were arranged in order to avoid the leaks. During the day, the lights were off and although it was daytime, the sunlight did not penetrate the bars. On one occasion, my jailers tried to terrorize me by threatening that at any time they could take me to the yard to execute me by fighting squad. I was very worried because by, by this because I knew that could easily happen given the record of the hundreds if not thousands of political prisoners they have executed by the dictatorship. Esto me preocupaba mucho porque yo sabía que esto bien podría ocurrir dado el historial que tiene la dictadura Castro de, hacer, de haber ejecutado a cientos, sino a miles de prisioneros políticos. Tuve que pasar todos estos abusos y humillaciones por no llorar y por grafitear. Se fue. Cuando, cuando muere un asesino que junto con su hermano, el actual presidente Raúl Castro, nunca permitió un partido diferente al que inventaran, a, a que intervinieran a punta de pistola. I had to undergo all this abuse and humiliation for not shedding tears and for graffitiing his gun when an assassin died, one who, with his brother, the current president of Cuba, Raul Castro, 
never allowed a different party than the one they, he created at gunpoint. Los hermanos Castro y su familia son los dueños de los tres periódicos, la radio, la televisión, la única compañía telefónica de Cuba a la que se le permite el suministro de Internet. Estos señores han permanecido en el poder durante casi 60 años, solo dando órdenes para que masacren cubanos, como fueron los tripulantes del remolcador 13 de marzo, varios atentados contra Oswaldo Payá Sardiña y su asesinato, e igualmente con Laura Poyán, no solo dividió a los cubanos, sino que los hizo exiliarse, muchos de ellos en este país. The Castro brothers and their family all uh, own all the newspapers, radio, TV, and only telephone company in Cuba, which is the only one allowed to, su to supply internet. These men have remained in power during almost 60 years, not only giving orders to massacre Cubans such as those aboard the tugboat 13 de marzo, but also various attempts against Oswaldo Payas Sardinia's life and his eventual murder, as well as that of Laura, Laura Poyan. The Castros not only divided all Cubans, but, all, but also made exiles of them, many of whom are in this country. Estos personajes contribuyeron en altas cifras de mercenarios y armas a las guerras de Angola, Etiopía, bajo el mando del ejército ruso, la FARC en Colombia, guerrillas en Venezuela en los años 60 y luego en las últimas dos décadas a través del apoyo al régimen dictatorial chavista que tiene hoy a su pueblo pasando hambre y represión. The Castros contributed high numbers of mercenaries and arms to the wars of Angola, Ethiopia, under the command of the Soviet Army, the FARC in Colombia, and guerrillas in Venezuela in the 60s, and in the last two decades have supported the dictatorial Chavista regime, which today has plunged their people into hunger and oppression. Quiero cerrar mi intervención pidiendo al pueblo y al gobierno de Estados Unidos dos cosas. En primer lugar, Pedimos solidaridad con la causa de la democracia en Cuba, ya que padecemos casi 60 años bajo un régimen que no permite elecciones democráticas. El mundo debe solidarizarse con nosotros y pedir a Raúl Castro que permita un plebiscito, elecciones democráticas en Cuba. I want to close my presentation requesting two things to the people and the government of the United States. First, we request solidarity for the cause of democracy in Cuba given that we have suffered a regime that does not allow democratic elections for almost 60 years. The world should give us solidarity and should ask Raul Castro for a plebiscite and democratic elections in Cuba. En segundo lugar, pido al pueblo y al gobierno de los Estados Unidos que presione al régimen de Raul Castro que libera los miles de presos políticos que existen en mi país debido al sistema totalitario en que vivimos los cubanos. Por lo menos el 85% de la población penal son inocentes bajo los estándares de cualquier democracia y jamás debiesen haber ido presos. And secondly, I ask the people and government of the United States to pressure Raul Castro's regime to release the thousands of political prisoners existing in my country. Due to the totalitarian system we Cubans live under, at least 85% of the present prison population would be considered innocent in any democratic country and would have never been sent to prison. Todos los habitantes de mi país somos rehenes del régimen de los hermanos Castro. 
y la vida de todos los cubanos, especialmente de los artistas, opositores y los disidentes, se encuentra en permanente peligro a manos de la represión de la dictadura. Una vez más, necesitamos la solidaridad del pueblo de los Estados Unidos y el apoyo de todos los pueblos del mundo. We Cubans on the island are all hostage of the Castro brothers' regime and the life of all Cubans, particularly artists, opponents and dissidents, are under permanent danger at the hands of the repressive dictatorship. Once again, we need the solidarity of the United States and the support of all people in the world. Thank you, Mr. Machado. Thank you. Dr. Aldessari. Ask you to turn on the microphone, I'm sorry. Thank sorry. You. Uh, thank you for the kind invitation. So, uh, my name is Dr. Halid Dosari. I'm a visiting scholar at the Arab Gulf States Institute in Washington, D.C. My research and writing examine gender, health, and laws in Saudi Arabia and the Arab Gulf States. My focus is on violence against women and advocacy for women's rights. My statement today aims to inform on the restrictions imposed on the citizens' ability to promote their rights in Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia is an absolute monarchy where political parties, unions, independent civil society organizations are prohibited by law. There is no penal code and judges liberally rely on a personal judgment to decide on cases based on the concept of tazir, which is an Islamic law concept that allows an individual judge to decide on a suitable punishment uh, at his, his own whim when no clear description of the act or the punishment is specified in Islamic scripture. It is not uncommon to find irrelevant historic uh, Islamic incidents or quotations taken out of context to justify irrational punishments against the critics. For instance, in the case of Ala Abrenji, he's an imprisoned Saudi journalist. Uh, his sentence docu document lists some of, the, of those historical sayings to justify sentencing him for seven years in prison, followed by an equal term of travel ban, merely for tweets in which he called for religious freedom, revocation of blasphemy laws, support for other human rights defenders, and for women driving. The unchecked authority of the king is enforced by law and the appointed religious clerics. In the last few years, several laws and regulations were issued to classify acts of promoting human rights, such as questioning public policies or religious norms, as acts of terror or as cybercrimes. In the last few years, I came across numerous statements filed by the prosecutors against peaceful critics, activists, and writers, which described their human rights advocacy as disobedience to the ruler, inciting the public against the ruler, or disrupt, disrupting the public stability. For instance, all the members of the Saudi Civil and Political Rights Association, along with other reputable activists, have been sentenced to lengthy prison terms under such charges for promoting a constitutional monarchy, religious tolerance, and the rule of law. This is particularly concerning as it curtails citizens' ability to comment on pu public policies, such as the role of Saudi Arabia in regional conflicts or the recent impact of the economic reforms. Several writers and economic analysts were recently silenced for critiquing the, econo the economic reforms' impacts. In 2013, I submitted a report on the situation of women's rights in Saudi Arabia to the UN Human Rights Council, listing recommendations to reform the Nationality Act, uh, the political and economic participation of women, revoking the ban on women driving, implementing measures to protect women's rights um, and women against violence, um, uh, and abolishing the male guardianship system, and none of these recommendations were implemented. In addition, I've joined women activists in 2013 in a campaign to revoke the driving ban by sharing videos of ourselves driving inside Saudi Arabia on social media. The campaign brought global attention, but the government responded negatively. Women activists were detained, defamed in local newspapers, had their cars confiscated, 
and two women were imprisoned for 72 days and then placed under travel bans for several months, merely for requesting to cross the, the United Arab Emirates-Saudi border in their cars. Last August, I've written a petition to the king, which was signed by 15,000 Saudi men and women, to request abolishing the guardianship system from the state's regu regulation. An activist friend in Riyadh delivered it to the king. The male guardianship system is made of policies and customary norms in which officials require women to obtain the approval of a male relative, usually a husband or a father or even a son, to access education, work, travel, marriage, or get a release from prison. It limits women autonomy and safety from abusive guardians. I've personally written several letters to support Saudi women seeking asylum in other countries to escape their guardians' abuse. Last year, I lost track of three Saudi sisters whom I've held uh, who fled the country and stayed in Malaysia to escape the sexual abuse of their guardian and who were forcibly retained by a private Saudi force to Riyadh in a case similar to that of a young man who fled religious persecution to Malaysia before forcibly uh, returned. The World Bank ranked Saudi Arabia as the highest country in the legal restrictions imposed on women's economic participation among 170 economies. None of the objectives planned for the Saudi vision can be reached without women's full participation in the workforce. Saudi women have created a daily hashtag on Twitter to end the guardianship system, and today it reached its 225th day without a response from the state. And instead, a young woman who supported the campaign was arrested for months, and she has published a public apology for participating in the campaign in the local newspaper upon her release. Local newspapers also reported the sentencing of a Saudi man to one year in prison and a penalty of $8,000 for promoting the campaign by placing posters on local mosques. In supporting the civil society in Saudi Arabia, several approaches were useful. The discussion of punishments on activists of top European officials with the king were very useful for, um, for our activists. Media coverage of Saudi affairs informed the public and compensated for the censored media inside our country. Most importantly, I find the vocal and material support for international community for prisoners of conscience as key for the crucial role they play in advancing political and economic reforms, accountability, gender equality, and religious tolerance. Currently, Saudi Arabia leaders are keen to secure economic and def defense alliances with the U.S., and this represents an ideal opportunity to promote a sustainable political and civil reforms, contrary to the notion that it may alienate uh, U.S. allies. And thank you for the opportunity to include my perspective in this session. Thank you so much, uh, Mr. Kasparov. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman, for inviting me here today. Thank you very much, Ranking Member Hernandez, for your nice words about my work. It's especially nice to hear such kind words compared to one U.S. Congressman who has recently said that Putin isn't so bad because Gary Kasparov is still alive. Um, and I'm also glad to be here in the Senate on the record um, because it seems I'm one of the few prominent Russians who is not in contact with the White House. As one of the countless millions of people who were freed or protected from totalitarianism by the United States of America, it's easy for me to talk about the past, to talk about the belief of the American people and their leaders that this country was exceptional and had special responsibilities to match its tremendous power. That the nation founded on freedom was bound to defend freedom everywhere. I could talk about the bipartisan legacy of this most American principle, from the founding fathers to Democrats like Harry Truman to Republicans like Ronald Reagan. I could talk about how the American people used to care deeply about human rights and dissidents in far off places and how this 
is what made America a beacon of hope, a shining city on a hill. America led by example and set a high standard, a standard that exposed the hypocrisy and cruelty of dictatorships around the world. But there is no time for nostalgia. Since the fall of the Berlin Wall, the collapse of the Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War, Americans and America have retreated from those principles and the world has become much worse off as a result. American skepticism about America's role in the world deepened in the long, painful wars in Afghanistan and Iraq and their aftermaths. Instead of applying the lessons learned about how to do better, lessons about fault intelligence and working with native populations, the main outcome was to stop trying. This result has been a tragedy for the billions of people still living under authoritarian regimes around the world, and it is based on faulty analysis. You can never guarantee a positive outcome, not in chess, not in war, and certainly not in politics. The best you can do is to do what you know is right and to try your best. I speak from experience when I say that the citizens of unfree states do not expect guarantees. They want a reason to hope and a fighting chance. People living under dictatorships want the opportunity for freedom, the opportunity to live in peace and to follow their dreams. From the Iraq war to the Arab Spring, to the current battles for liberty from Venezuela to Eastern Ukraine, people are fighting for that opportunity, giving up their lives for freedom. The United States must not abandon them. The United States and the rest of the free world has an unprecedented advantage in economic and military strengths today. What is lacking is the will. The will to make the case to the American people, the will to take risks and invest in the long-term security of the country and the world. This will require investment in aid, in education, in security that allow countries to attain the stability their people so badly need. Such investment is far more moral and far cheaper than the cycle of terror, war, refugees, and military intervention that results when America leaves a vacuum of power. The best way to help refugees is to prevent them from becoming refugees in the first place. The Soviet Union was an existential threat, and this focused the attention of the world and the American people. The existential threat today is not found on a map, but it is very real. The forces of the past are making steady progress against the modern world order. Terrorist movements in the Middle East, extremist parties across Europe, a paranoid tyrant in North Korea threatening nuclear blackmail, and at the center of the web, an aggressive KGB dictator in Russia. They all want to turn the world back to a dark past because their survival is threatened by the values of the free world, epitomized by the United States. And they are thriving as the United States has retreated. The Global Freedom Index has declined for 10 consecutive years. No one likes to talk about the United States as a global policeman, but this is what happens when there is no cop on the beat. American leadership begins at home, right here. America cannot lead the world of, on democracy and human rights if there is no unity on the meaning and importance of these things. Leadership is required to make that case clearly and powerfully. Right now, Americans are engaged in politics at a level not seen in decades. It's an opportunity for them to rediscover that making America great begins with believing America can be great. The Cold War was won on American values that were shared by both parties and nearly every American. Institutions that were created by a Democrat 
Truman were triumphant 40 years later thanks to the courage of a Republican, Reagan. This bipartisan consistency created the decades of strategic stability that is the great strength of democracies. Strong institutions that outlast politicians allow for long-range planning. In contrast, dictators can operate only tactically, not strategically, because they are not constrained by the balance of powers, but they cannot afford to think beyond their own survival. This is why a dictator like Putin has an advantage in chaos, the ability to move quickly. This can only be met by strategy, by long-term goals that are based on shared values, not on polls and cable news. The fear of making things worse has paralyzed the United States from trying to make things better. There will always be setbacks, but the United States cannot quit. The spread of democracy is only proven remedy for nearly every crisis that plagues the world today. War, famine, poverty, terrorism, all are generated and exacerbated by authoritarian regimes. A policy of America first inevitably puts America's security last. Global American leadership is required because there is no one else and because it's good for America. There is no weapon, there is no wall that is more powerful for security than America being envied, imitated, and admired around the world. Admired not for being perfect, but for having the exceptional courage to always try to be better. Thank you. Thank you for being here. I'm going to allow uh, Senator Kane, do you need to ask? Okay. Senator Menendez. Well, uh, thank you all for your incredible testimony. And uh, <clears throat> I'm just going to take a moment, Mr. Chairman, and I'll excuse myself with our recorder here. Uh, I'll give you the, the synthesis of what I said, but I, I don't want to proceed without saying this uh, to Mr. Um, Maldonado Machado. Uh, Danilo, estamos eh, <laughs> muy emocionados por tu presencia aquí hoy. Gracias. Es fácil hablar de libertad y de respeto de derechos humanos desde afuera. Es mucho más difícil hacerlo desde adentro. Así que te admiro enormemente. El resto de lo que, de lo que vamos a decir lo voy a hacer en inglés porque los procedimientos que hacen falta saber que lo que tú dijiste, ¿no? Pero no era por, por, por falta de respeto o, o de cariño. So, I, I appreciate your... Uh, your testimony, and I wish that more of our colleagues were here, to be honest with you. Because even those who somehow have this romanticized idea of what the Castros are all about, even those who applaud the engagement that we have had with the Castro regime, what bothers me is not that, that's America, it's a different point of view. What bothers me is that they never talk about the Danilos Machados uh, of the world. They don't talk about uh, the Marta Beatriz Roques. They don't talk about Berta Solel. Uh, and a large number of individuals who are the Vaclav Havels, the Lekvalenses, the Alexander Solonitsins of Cuba. And for some reason, the world is focused on human rights and democracy in other places, but somehow cannot rivet its attention on the very abuses that they feel so compelled to stay from the highest mountaintop about any other place in the world. But when it comes to Cuba, there's this indifference. 
And so while I disagree with my colleagues on some of the policy views, I at least I would hope that they would be voices as they are so eloquently in other parts of the world to speak about those who struggle inside of Cuba as you do. I, I heard your petition, and but I'm wondering in what concrete way would you want to see the United States government uh, act to help you as an artisan, as a citizen, be free to perform your art, to say what you wish, to have your colleagues be able to do the same? What would you want us to actually, if, we, if, if you could, if you could say to us, do this, what, what is it, what would it be? Es muy difícil, ¿no? Primero, agradecerte de nuevo, ¿no? Creo que la forma que ustedes pueden ayudar lo están haciendo. You can help us the way you are doing now. Pero yo creo que que si hay alguien que que no respeta los los derechos humanos en en un país, si hay alguien que es cómplice de asesinato como 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 lo ha sido esta esta persona durante 60 años en su tiempo fueron a, a buscar a Pablo Escobar también fueron a buscar a Bill Lai y yo no sé por qué razón todavía estas personas están libres y no responden a ningún tribunal but if, the, if these people have been violated violating human rights for, for almost 60 years if, if you went after Pablo Escobar or Bin Laden more recently why these people are still there in power no importa cómo se, se me pueda ayudar a mí, sino cómo se le puede ayudar a 12 millones que están ahí tratando de escapar constantemente. Should insist that before there is any further deepening of this relationship, that uh, there be a call for free and independent elections. Crees tú que, que esta administración antes de dar ningún otro paso más debía exigir eh, eh, elecciones libres antes de multipartidistas antes de antes de continuar ese tipo de relación? Sin duda. Sin duda. About it. Do you believe that we should say to the Castro uh, regime that before there can be any deepening relationship, uh, all political prisoners uh, must be released? For sure, for sure. Um, uh, I, I could go on, but I, I'll, we have other important uh, witnesses. But I, I really appreciate you giving a, a, a presence, a young man who has spent a good part of his young life in prison, beaten, simply because he was seeking to do those things that we in America take for granted. It's just amazing to me, and I hear nothing about that uh, in terms of uh, our State Department and our engagement. So I hope things will change. Uh, Dr. Elisari, let me ask you, how is it can we best you know, we're often here, you know, in response as we talk about human rights and democracy and whether it be in Saudi Arabia or other parts in the, in the um, Arab world about 
well, you don't understand culture, you don't understand history. I, I respect culture and history, but I cannot imagine that anything can be legitimized to, to put women in the plight in which they are in. How would you have us approach the issues of human rights and democracy and, and the role of women particularly and their rightful role as a human being uh, in terms of the fulfillment of their rights? What do, what do you think would be the most constructive way? Uh, one of the main important things is to recognize that there are voices within those regimes, within Saudi Arabia and, and other places, which actually require those uh, demands, which actually fight for those demands. So it's not foreign, it's not against the culture, it's not against their beliefs. So the uh, justification presented by those regimes as this is culturally irrelevant or culturally uh, inappropriate is not correct. The other thing is that there are a huge diversity in the Islamic world, in the Muslim world, in the Arabic world, in which places where women, like for instance in the United Arab Emirates, women have been now uh, part of the uh, armed forces and the um, air forces and the uh, commercial uh, planes. So there are precedences where other Muslim countries, where other Arab countries uh, have uh, allowed women and men uh, very much of an equal opportunity without um, relevance to cultural um, appropriation or not. Um, so I think that should be brought into the discussion and end all of the movements that are happening, the organic movements and the grassroots movements within Saudi Arabia. There are um, great diversity in the number of people. So we, we have women uh, and men on the campaigns that I've uh, participated in, whether it's for, for political, municipal election or uh, for driving or for allowing, for removing the guardianship system or for the defense of the prisoners of conscience. We have um, religious scholars, uh, really intellectual scholars, have argued for those things from the perspective of Islamic uh, schools of thoughts. So I think there is a, a room and leverage to pressure especially now um, that these things are appropriate since there are voices that demand those things within those um, countries and by supporting those voices and those demands many of those voices are uh, based on Islamic uh, justifications as well. Uh, we can um, elevate uh, the role of not only of uh, human rights but the role of Islamic diversity that is so much um, hijacked by the states. Uh, Mr. Kasparov, uh, at one time, I thought I could be a great chess master. So, uh, uh, and I do enjoy playing the game and uh, I think it's extraordinary. And I, I appreciate the work that you do in your foundation to uh, use it as a vehicle to create critical skills for children in schools, so I appreciate that. But I wanna ask you about, as much as I would be engaged in asking you, about some of the great opening gambits. Uh, I, I want to ask you about uh, uh, Russia in the context of, you know, very often um, uh, in a different context than I asked the doctor, some argue that uh, Russia is different, that history and the people themselves are conditioned to authoritarian rule. Uh, that Putin, uh, these people claim, provides uh, firm leadership coupled with a vision of greatness, of Russian greatness that appeals to ordinary citizens, and that the path to greatness requires sacrifices and uh, the return to the greater Russia. Uh, how do, does one frame, uh, and you were in Russia, and unfortunately, because of what was going on and your activism, you had to come to the United States. How does one frame the narrative so that Russia's greatness includes a respect for human rights? Uh, 
Thank you very much for this question, because it comes back and forth. This is one of the arguments I hear in many talk shows that you know, certain countries they just simply do not fit democracy. And Russia, of course, you know, is one of the samples. So the country is doomed to live under authoritarian or totalitarian regimes. Uh, which is, you know, it's, it's, we look at history, yes, Russia had very short periods of uh, 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 democratic rule. But at the same time, we could look around the world and we will find places where, you know, divided nations demonstrated that democracy performed much, much better than any other form of governance. Let's look at Korean Peninsula. It's the same nation, divided on the north, certainly is parallel. And on one side, we have a concentration camp, a gulag with 20 million people that is trying to sell, you know, it's the nuclear blackmail to feed its own people uh, and to prevent, you know, mass, massive famine and potential revolt. On the other side, we have 40 million of the living in democracy and most vibrant uh, um, economies in the world. We can talk about two Germanys, divided Germanys, also Taiwan and China. And even, you know, going back to Russia, let's not forget Russia and Ukraine, they're very close. Maybe it's not as close as to Koreans, but still, when you look at Eastern Ukraine, you could see that many people who live there, they're also ethnic Russians. They grew up in the same country called Soviet Union. Uh, even after 1991, there was no border, so they could go from, let's say, Kharkov to Kursk. Um, and uh, there's a fact that is being committed by many of Putin's uh, apologists that most of the fighters in the Ukrainian army today, they're ethnic Russians, because they're fighting for their right to choose and to live in a free country because they know exactly what to expect in Putin's Russia. And, uh, you know, it's, in, in my view, the fight, you know, between Russia and Ukraine could be viewed as the kind of a geopolitical showdown, historical one, of the Kyiv Russia, which was, you know, part of the European culture and the Golden Horde. So the Asian uh, uh, succession, unfortunately, that dominated uh, Russia for, 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 for centuries. And uh, one of the things, you know, followed the uh, comments in the first panel is that uh, Ukraine, unlike Russia in 1994, experienced a peaceful transition of power. So the, current, the, the president then, uh, Leonid Kuchma, lost elections, and you know, it peacefully was replaced by, by his successor, Leonid Kuchma. So with all credit given to Boris Yeltsin, he failed the, the ultimate test of peaceful transition of power. And instead of following you know, proper electoral pr pr procedures, he picked up a successor. Some of us say, you know, it could be Boris Nemtsov. But Yeltsin made the wrong choice, and we are now seeing the consequences. So I don't believe that people in Russia are just doomed to live under the shadows of dictatorship. And many of us fought. Some of them, you know, were even killed. Many of them are in prison, and uh, even more are like myself, are living in, in exile. But uh, the future of Russia just belongs, belongs to the um, uh, family of the civilized democratic nations. And we can look at the current economic situation in the country. It's one of the richest countries in the world that is living in, in terrible conditions. We can see the steady deterioration of living standards. Economy is in free fall. And that's why Putin, as every dictator, he is now, he has replaced domestic news by, by his aggressive foreign policy. If you follow Russian uh, um, uh, news, uh, news and Russian talk shows, they don't talk about Russia. They talk about Ukraine, Syria, Israel, United States blaming the world for all uh, the hardship. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Mr. Kasparov, if I could lead off from that as well, it's a, and if you disagree with any of the statements I'm about to make, as it leads into my question, you'll tell me. Number one is I, Vladimir Putin at this point has amassed more power in his hands than any leader in Moscow since Stalin in the 50s. Um, number two, there was 
less than 10 years ago where there, were still, there was still political resistance that we could see expressed, whether it was through rock bands, uh, political parties, demonstrations, that has steadily eroded, and it's a result of his willingness to exile, murder, and jail political opponents. And so you have no doubts that uh, Vladimir Putin has ordered the murder and, uh, and the uh, jailing of, of, of political opponents. I, I also don't believe you have any doubts that he has directed uh, the targeting and the killing of innocent civilian women, children uh, in Aleppo and, and, and in other par parts of Syria. I ask all that and lay that context out because we, are, we have now had two administrations who believed that somehow this is someone we could work with and create a, some sort of a strategic geopolitical partnership. And the new administration has also expressed a willingness to potentially pursue this sort of geopolitical partnership with Vladimir Putin, despite all these things we know about him. And I'm interested from your perspective, what would the impact be on our credibility, on America's standing in the world, and, and quite frankly, our national security, but in particular, I want you to opine on our credibility and our standing in the world as a nation who promotes democracy and liberty and the rights of all people. What would, what would it do to our standing if despite all of these things that we now know, we somehow enter in a geopolitical deal with Moscow in which we are willing to overlook all these things and the sovereignty of nations like Ukraine in exchange for their supposed cooperation in Syria? What would the impact be on America's standing in the world if we go into a deal with a criminal like this? Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, I agree with everything you said about uh, Vladimir Putin and, and his regime. Uh, I think it's important to emphasize that the United States and Putin's Russia, let me emphasize Putin's Russia, have no common values, no common ground, and no common interest. It's, it's a false narrative that unfortunately is being pushed by some people in this country and in Europe that Vladimir Putin could be an ally uh, in war against terrorism. Terrorism uh, has been, I wouldn't say invented, but uh, um, nursed by, the, by KGB decades ago. And now we could see that in Syria, uh, ISIS has been used by Bashar al-Assad's uh, butcherous regime as an excuse for the atrocities that they committed against their own people. Again, it's a long story to find out whether you know, KGB infiltrators had influence within ISIS. I believe so. But what is most important that we could see that Assad's forces never fought ISIS, and Putin always looked you know, as, uh, for ISIS as, an, as a good reason for him, an excuse to enter, enter Syria. So uh, the problem is you know, that if you make one concession to Putin's regime, they look for more concessions. They, they don't look, they don't look at, at compromises as, 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 as a search for common ground. It's a sign of weakness, and they will push them forward. You mentioned two administrations. Uh, Bush 43 administration and Barack Obama administration. I could also mention that one of the earliest mistakes was made even by Clinton administration, while in 1995, uh, Bill Clinton was empowered by the bipartisan resolution of the US Congress to demand Boris Yeltsin to stop the first tra transaction of Russian nuclear technology to Iran, uh, and he could threaten and actually to pull out financial aid, which was crucial. Unfortunately, he decided against do doing it. So, but if Clinton administration or Bush administration could be somehow forgiven because they looked at Russia as a country that was making, you know, first steps towards democracy, the last eight years, especially the last four years, you know, um, I think it's the, 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 this short-sighted policy cannot be excused because those were the years where Putin accumulated all the power and moved from uh, any, um, any form of cooperation into the open confrontation. Ten years ago in Munich, he delivered a speech which cannot be interpreted uh, otherwise, but the 
challenge to the West and Munich Security Conference. And by the way, he follows almost religiously to what he said there, challenging American power and making the United States as a prime target for his domestic, domestic uh, uh, propaganda. If the United States enters any kind of deal at the expense of its traditional democratic allies or the countries like Ukraine that are heroically fighting against Putin's aggression, that will, that will be a, a very deep wound in the reputation, global reputation of the United States because it will be seen as a clear case of hypocrisy uh, and it will undermine U.S. attempts to promote uh, democracy worldwide. And it, by the way, it will not stop Putin from moving for, uh, further because again, for him, it will be a sign of weakness and will tr he'll try to uh, um, exercise even more power because his domestic uh, mm, propaganda is based exclusively on the confrontation with the United States and the free world. The, you are a longtime observer and perhaps know firsthand and have seen the tradecraft of the KGB and now the Putin government. As you see reports about their active measures in the United States elections, uh, beyond simply some just you know just say, well, this is all about trying to reach a particular outcome. In your opinion, beyond just the outcome of the election, somebody winning, somebody losing, um, deeper than that, what is the reason why uh, Vladimir Putin's government would seek to undertake active measures in which they weaponize leaked, uh, illegally accessed information? Uh, for purpose and, and, and then strategically placing that information in the press. What, at the end of the day, were they, were they trying to go beyond that to undermine the credibility of American democracy, so chaos and stability? Uh, what is the thinking that goes behind that sort of action? Uh, Vladimir Putin is targeting democracy as an institution, undermining democracy. And of course, the United States is, is, is the most lucrative target for a KGB uh, um, agent. Uh, he believes that he could uh, destroy any hopes for democratizations in Russia or in, in other countries of uh, unfree world. Uh, he has been doing the same things in Europe. He has been steadily attacking democratic institutions in the UK, in now in Holland, in France, in Germany, uh, uh, in Italy, elsewhere, because for him it's a great opportunity to use, what, a, what an irony, technology invented in the free world, the freedom, freedom of speech to undermine the very institutions that are protecting, are protecting our, um, uh, our freedom. And uh, he is not going to stop because for him it's, uh, it's the natural way of extending his powers since he wants chaos. Chaos helps him to promote his clandestine agenda uh, and chaos prevents unified front of, of uh, European nations and the United States and Canada and other democratic nations in the world to stand against uh, Putin's aggression. Dr. Aldassari, you said in October, on October 10th to the BBC's Arabic service that the problem with the Saudi legal system is that it deals with the lives of people in the 21st century with the mentality of the, of the 7th century. I was hoping you could elaborate further for so those who might read the transcripts of this hearing or be watching at some point. Uh, what, what did you mean by the they are dealing with the lives of people in the 21st century with the mentality of the 7th century? Very good example is... Um considering any critics of the state, any critics of the policies as um, disobedient to the ruler. This idea of a ruler as the guardian, as the ultimate guardian, is very much a foreign uh, idea. And it's uh, an idea that has been um, inspired by early historical uh, examples that doesn't have any relevance to um, the social contracts or to modern world. Um, and if any act could be interpreted by any citizen as a disobedience to the king, that's a good ground to punish this person either by flogging or either by sentencing. 
Um, there is no penal code in Saudi Arabia. There is no written uh, codification of what, what does it mean to have a, a certain crime and what's the kind of punishment. As I've just mentioned, the ta'zir, which is the authority given to judges by certain Islamic schools of thoughts to uh, decide on punishments according to their own whim, is something that is threatening for um, the due process. Uh, often when Saudi Arabia uh, is challenged by the international community um, and asking for rationale or justification for the punishments enforced on activists, uh, they bring uh, forth the idea of the due process. We're having courts, we're having lawyers, we're having uh, trials, but the, the, the whole uh, philosophy of what, what is a, a criminal act is absent. So you could just go to jail like all the members of the civil and political rights for demanding that, should be, that there should be a social contract with very uh, with much of a checks and balances for the authority of the ruler. If you demand that in Saudi Arabia, you are sentenced for 11 years or 15 years in prison and followed by equal duration of travel ban. So this is what I've meant, that this kind of mentality that doesn't really coincide with any definitions of human rights, uh, this kind of mentality that treats any act of expression of opinion or expression of religious uh, beliefs as an act of terror, as an act of insult against Islam uh, to protect their power. Basically, the religious institutions and the legal institutions are there to protect the status quo rather than to implement justice. And this really is uh, apparent from the wide variance of sentences uh, that people experience from even the same judge. In our hearing for Secretary of State, the, the, the nominee, now Secretary of State, testified in response to my questions about Saudi Arabia that we needed to account for cultural uh, differences that existed that perhaps uh, uh, is the reason why this is still in, in place and it would take a little longer than it would in other places. Is, is, in your opinion, is the condition of the general population, in particular women and how they are treated under Saudi law and by Saudi leadership, is that a result of some sort of a cultural affinity or is that basically a system of political control uh, disguised as a cultural yeah. uh, principle? So the total obedience that is um, demanded from citizens to, uh, to the rule of the king, basically, the absolute uh, authority to the king that is uh, unchecked by any balances. Uh, or measures. This is the same authority that is granted to men over women in a family. Uh, and the, um, the massive support that we uh, amassed in the male guardianship campaign, it's a social campaign, and the massive um, you know, support from religious um, uh, scholars as well, uh, who came out and said that these uh, practices are not found uh, in Islam, and there are um, precedents in Islam that actually contradicted these ideas. And these ideas are fairly new. So in the lives of um, people in the 60s in Saudi Arabia, there was no uh, ban on women to travel on, her, on their own. It was an invented uh, state regulation um, because of a certain incident that happened. Uh, so all of those restrictions that were imposed on women to refrain women from participating in the public meaningfully or to acquire um, uh, you know, uh, equal opportunities in, in, the, in the workforce or in education or to decide on their own lives or marriages are very much an invented uh, you know, interpretation of what should be um, a different scenario if really the diversity of Islamic schools of thoughts and the diversity of people have been expressed. And this is something that we've witnessed from the number of people uh, of all uh, backgrounds that have joined the campaign to express in, uh, online and in writings. My last question, doctors, is because of your activism, because of your testimony here today, because of the words you've expressed and the work that you've done, what, what, do they, what do they say about you in Saudi Arabia? Well, I think one of the things that we learned to do, I'm sure there are mixed feelings. But I mean, by the I government, mean, I apologize. 
Well, I do, I do see my name coming in the formal uh, print media and in uh, online campaign, defamation campaigns all the time. Um, and the names of other people who are, who are doing the same and similar to my distinguished colleague here, I think that we learn to work without thinking of things beyond our control. Uh, we tend to uh, uphold our values and our principles and try to do the best uh, of the resources that we have. Um, ideas like what the government would think of is not of an importance, I think, to people uh, in Saudi Arabia more than to secure the public interest and to make sure that uh, their rights are um, safeguarded and guaranteed. Mr. Maldonado, there is a school of thought in American politics that the best way to advance the cause of human rights and freedom in Cuba is to allow for Cuba to be flooded with American business and, and uh, travelers, but in particular American business, that if somehow there were more economic interaction between American corporations and the Cuban government, which controls the entire economy, that that would somehow lead automatically at some point to political freedoms and, uh, and some form of representative government. Do you share that view, and has that been your experience over the last two years or two and a half years since the change in policy? We now see a large number of chambers of commerce and business interests traveling to Cuba and interacting with the Cuban government. Has that led to any political opening for people such as yourself or others who disagree with the government? And do you believe that somehow economic interaction with the United States in and of itself will lead to democracy without additional pressure? El micrófono, el micrófono. Esto va a tener que ver si los Estados Unidos pone requisitos para pagarle a sus propios trabajadores. This uh, will have some impact if the United States could demand that they could pay their own workers in their U.S. companies. Si no va, va a pasar como ha pasado durante este tiempo que distintas compañías han tenido... Otherwise, it would be it would be more of the same as uh, all the foreign companies in, in Cuba have experienced during uh, long years, in which the state is like a middleman between the company and uh, the Cuban workers. A que solamente el gobierno le paga el equivalente de dos horas de trabajo en los Estados Unidos, que sería en un mes de trabajo para un cubano serían 20 dólares, 25 dólares, 30 dólares a veces, si es médico. So the Cuban government is paying uh, their workers 20, 25, 30 dollars a month for doctors and uh, uh, workers in, in Cuba, which is uh, earned by an American worker in a couple of hours. But, so, in the... Um the fundamental question that people continue to pose is that we should somehow separate the political opening from the, the, from the economic debate. Is it your view that we need to be doing more to empower civil society, uh, create obviously attention to the cause such as people, such as yourself, that in essence if we could focus on the political and the freedom, that that would then create a free Cuban people who could decide an economic model for themselves and for their country? Eso, 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 eso es bien difícil porque si, si se centran solamente en la libertad política puede ser que haya un cambio y ellos todavía 
sean de jefe de, de grandes empresas y grandes cosas y pase como un paso silencioso de gobierno. Well, that, that's uh, rather difficult because uh, you know if if it is only um, political, they could remain as owners of the economy and continue as uh, as uh, any other uh, transition of power to um, the, themselves. It is, it is fair to say that the Cuban government, across its holding companies, controlled by sometimes military figures in the government, basically control the vast and overwhelming majority of the Cuban economy. Por supuesto que sí. Yes. Incluso eh, eh, americanos saben el costo también de, de querer abrir una empresa como, como cualquiera, pero, o sea, Alan Gross, o sea, well, secuestrado. American citizens know the cost of uh, opening some sort of business in Cuba. Mr. Alan Gross is an example. Se debieran poner requisitos que, que custodien lo, los derechos de los americanos que vayan a invertir, cubano-americanos o lo que sea que respeten su, su política de, de, de empresa, ¿no? de, there, de marca. There should be requirements to the uh, Cuban government that uh, Americans investing in Cuba should be respected. Their policies should be respected to do uh, their business, to conduct their business with, with all their rights. Quizás eso sea otra vía de alcanzar la libertad. Maybe that would be a way to reach, another way to reach uh, freedom. The, uh The resistance in Cuba, the people like yourself who are not just demonstrating against the oppression and the tyranny, but also who aspire for a freer, more democratic Cuba where people are represented. When this opening happened with Cuba, that included all the celebrations that we saw about it, yet we saw such little mention of the plight of those such as yourself and others, uh, what impact did that have on the psychology, the, the morale? of those such as yourself who, uh, who are still suffering? Imagínate, es que si siguen abriendo empresas, pero si no siguen pagando, si yo sigo siendo intermediario, como te vi al principio, no hacemos nada. Seguimos secuestrados, es lo mismo. Businesses continue to open, but they, there, is still, there is still that middleman that will distribute the, the profits Uh, and will pay um, the Cuban workers a very, very small salaries and keep uh, the profit for themselves. So the bottom line is what American business interests need to know is that an, op an economic opening to Cuba is not necessarily an economic opening with the Cuban people. It is an economic opening to do business with the Cuban government, who then uses it as an additional form of control over the Cuban people. Exactamente. Exactly. Exactamente. My last question is, since the opening of the U.S. Embassy, or designation of the once consulate to embassy, have the personnel there, including the charge d'affaires and others in charge of that facility, been supportive of you, reached out to you, interacted with you? Sometimes we're called by phone. Y, 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 y fue interesante porque fui invitado a la celebración del 4 de julio I was invited to the fourth July, uh, y era el único artista disidente que había ahí entonces los demás and I was the only artist, uh, on venue and in uh, have you ever in your in over the last two or three years as several of our colleagues have visited Cuba congressmen senators have you ever had any member of Congress visit you senadores alguna vez te han invitado a hablar con ellos 
No, pero sí a mis colegas, otros disidentes, cuando vino Obama, que fui, fue bien importante, fue, fue el único presidente que se reunió. No to me, but certainly when President Obama visited Cuba, he met several uh, all the dissidents, which was very important, uh, a very important action by him. After the president visited Cuba and left, what was the, uh, the government, the Castro government's reaction to the people uh, who met with him? Was there a, did you notice a change in their behavior after he left? Did they become more repressive after the fact? No, repression has been increased. My last question. Since December of 2014, when this opening with Cuba was announced, has repression in Cuba increased or decreased? Since December of 2014, since December of 2014, when the opening was announced to Cuba from the U.S. government, has repression in Cuba increased or decreased? It has increased because there is also more activism. Uh, Mr. Chairman, um, very briefly, one, one quick question, uh, Daniel, and then a comment. Uh, <clears throat> do you think that after the openings of relationships, the Castro regime uh, thinks that they must change in terms of human rights or democracy, or have they already acquired what they want? A lo mejor también pueden soltar al Chapo Guzmán y a lo mejor él puede cambiar. Well, believing that would lead you to think that by releasing El Chapo, Guzmán, he could change his attitude. What do you think? <laughs> asesino, asesino, he tiene que responder por su... Do you think that would be effective? A murderer is a murderer. Uh-huh. Uh, by the way, Mr. murder is a murderer. I, I get it. Uh, as to your quest line of question, Mr. Chairman, of course, in, in Cuba, if you want to do business, you have to do it with Raul's son or his son-in-law both high-ranking officials of the mil Cuban military, both who run the two major entities, one on tourism uh, and its related industry, the other one in agriculture. So not, not, not very capable of doing business with the Cuban people and unlocking the freedom of the Cuban people to make money, decide how, get paid directly by U.S. companies, be able to spend that money in a way they want, including hiring some of their relatives or friends and therefore create an economic movement that creates a freedom at the end of the day. So I appreciate your line of question. The last thing I want to say, Danilo, uh, I don't know when you're going back to Cuba, uh, but when you do, I want you to make sure you your contacts here in the United States, if you are arrested again, I want you, I think the chairman and I would both want to know uh, immediately through your contacts, because the uh, if there is to be an embassy uh, of the United States in Cuba, uh, for that fact, any place in the world, uh, then it seems to me that, uh, in fact, there should be a vigorous uh, pursuit of uh, giving uh, uh, assistance to human rights activists, political dissidents, independent journalists who are jailed simply because they peacefully try to express their position. So 
I, I, I want to do, I hope, what we have done in other parts of the world uh, when we did with uh, Waletsa and Vaclav Havel and others is create this light upon the individual that hopefully creates some degree of, of security for them. I, the, the regime has not seemed to care much about that, but at some point it has to, it has to give. And I just want to, uh, I appreciate you taking the risk to come here and testify because your oppressors get to sit in the back row, uh, but uh, in Cuba you cannot do that. And so uh, to the extent that we can be helpful to protect you, I want to make sure you know that you are not alone. My final question, not necessarily a final question, but there's one more. My colleagues, some will wonder, well, if, if, if it's such a dictatorship, if it's so tyrannical, then why is Mr. Maldonado allowed to travel, come here to the United States and say the things that he is saying? In your opinion, why have they allowed you to be here today and to testify? Gracias a, a las protestas continuas a partir del 2011, el mundo pudo saber que existían disidentes. Thanks to continuous movement of protest, the world knows that there are dissidents in Cuba. Pues quitaron el permiso de salida. Anteriormente solamente salían de ellos. They, Hasta ahora. they removed the, the, the permit to travel. In the past, only they could travel. Now all can travel. He tenido varias veces dificultad salir. I have, had, I have faced difficulties to leave the country sometimes. Y las denuncias han contribuido a que salga. Quizás ellos esperen que no regrese. By that action being denounced, that um, prohibition was removed. Maybe they hope that I won't be back. Well, we appreciate all of you for being here. The record is going to remain open for 48 hours, and, um, and I thank you all again for your time and for your brave testimony. And with that, the, this meeting is adjourned. Thank you.